Great, thank you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5. If you want to turn your Bibles there, hope you brought your Bibles. We're going to be in verses 17 through 42. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be up on the screen for you to follow along there as well. Um, this morning's cool for me. My parents, Dan and Beth Henley, are here this morning. Uh, they're over here. If you want to come say hi to them, my dad's easy to find. He has an eagle tie. I think he's going to a Lee Greenwood's concert right after the service. Uh, so you can say hi to them. Well, Acts chapter 5, as we continue our series moving through uh, this book uh, by Luke, giving the account of God's continued, Jesus' continued work here on this wor- uh, world by the power of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and through the early church as the gospel went forward. In the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at chapters 3, really in this section 3 through 8, and Jacob, I'm getting a lot of feedback in my mic, I don't know if y'all are getting that, Uh, but chapters 3 through 8, in which what begins to happen after things have been really hunky-dory for the first couple chapters for the church in Acts, the first couple chapters there in Acts 1 and 2, there begins to be significant persecution in the life of the church. And so what we've been doing the last couple weeks is we're looking at that persecution, the external issues that we're facing the church. And then beginning next week, we'll begin to look at the church's response to some internal issues that have been going on as well. But this is the third of what we're looking at is the gospel advancement, even in the face of persecution. How the gospel continued to move forward and to be proclaimed. In the first week, we looked at the type of gospel that is proclaimed, the spirit-filled gospel. An exclusive gospel and a gospel that is living Sorry to be self-referential to my sermons, but since I was gone last week, I want to catch us up just a little bit. So that's what we looked at the first week, that, that if the gospel is going to advance in the face of persecution, that it has to be a spirit-filled, exclusive, and living gospel. And then the second week, we looked at the fact that if we're going to be part of that work of advancing the gospel through bold proclamation, that we need to become unshakable, and that comes by getting shaken by God, by the cross and by the resurrection. And this week we come to the third components, similar to the courage that we looked at a couple weeks ago, but this week we're going to look at who we must speak to, who is critical to speak to as we seek to advance the gospel even in the face of persecution. We'll pick up in verse 17 and read all the way to the end of this chapter in verses 42. Read along in your own Bibles as I read out loud. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him that is, the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy, and they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this could, would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, For they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, 
We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. But God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, that is the Senate, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thetis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This ends the reading of God's holy and flowerful word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, there's two different groups here. There's the apostles and there's the Sadducees or the Senate, made up of all the ruling members of the body in Israel and Jerusalem of that time. And these are found in stark contrast to one another in this case. The Sadducees' main method in that day, you might notice, was to win the approval and the attention of others. In fact, what they were frustrated about with the disciples, you see at the very beginning, is why are they imprisoning them? Because they are jealous of them. And they seek to retain the status quo by cozying up to the Roman powers. The Sadducees were known as being the political and economic elite in society of that day, and they wanted to keep that power and that eliteness and those positions by coming up alongside the Roman Empire and trying to keep the status quo and keeping the peace in Jerusalem. We don't want anybody ruffling the waters around here because if that happens, then Rome gets involved and that's not good for anybody. That was their approach. The disciples have a very different approach. The disciples decide that instead of simply to idling up, sidling up next to power and, and giving in to power, that what they will do is they will speak to power with boldness. Even when it means losing power, even when it means possibly losing influence or losing approval, and also even facing the discomfort of the suffering of persecution. The problem that we face here in this text, and we face as well, is may not be persecution, and it's not just the problem the disciples face. The disciples certainly face that, and we addressed that about being courageous and unshakable a couple weeks ago. But I also want us to see that even more specifically, that if the gospel is going to advance in this world, if we're going to be involved in that gospel advancement, then we must be a people who are willing to speak truth to power, even if it costs us something. 
that the people to whom we must make sure that we are not giving up the gospel to in order to win their approval are those in power. We have a problem as Christians in our day, don't we? In the American church, we have a cultural problem. It has changed, and it has changed really fast. Well, the things that we used to be approved of about Christians, it seems like the general culture approved of our mores and our morals and our teachings. There was an assumption even up to maybe 100 years ago that there was a God that ruled the world, and yet that's, those days are long gone. We don't have money for the most part. We don't have power, and we don't have prestige. What will we do? Will we be faithful to the gospel? There's a trilogy of books, it's actually poetry, uh, that tells a story by a guy named Calvin Miller. And the, the books are called this, The Singer, The Song, and The Finale. They're heart poems from, about the New Testament. And the singer is, uh, is Jesus. And in, in the poems, there is a, 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 an enemy that he faces, and that's Satan. He's known as the world hater. And in these poems, there's all those who follow the world hater, and they turn against the singer. And there's a profound quote within the first of those poems by Miller. And he says this, It is hard to keep on singing when the audience has turned its back. That is the culture that we face today. That is the world in which we live, in which generally the the world and the audience has turned its back. That what was once okay about us is no longer okay. And it's hard It's hard to keep preaching the gospel and being faithful to the truth of scriptures in that context when everyone is turning their back on you. A natural defense mechanism in the face of threats, in the face of persecution, is to sell out to our mission, to sell out to the truth and to the truth of the gospel, and instead cozy up alongside of those who would say, why don't you just fudge a little bit here and here, and we'll give you the political power. We'll give you the comfort and the safety that you need. That's, that's the temptation. But the Bible is a history, has a long history, in which when God's message moves forward, it happens when his people, when his prophets, when his preachers, when the parents of his children continue to faithfully preach the gospel to those in power, even when it's hard. They speak the truth. Moses did it to Pharaoh, right? Here he comes to the greatest, to the greatest ruler the, the world had pretty much ever known at that point, the the Egyptian empire, and he comes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. This happens going on even in the people of Israel. Nathan comes to David at the zenith of his power, and he comes to him and says, David, you are the man. And he calls him out for his sin and calls him to repentance. Elijah does this to Ahab and Jezebel. Here it is. Elijah believes that maybe he's the last Yahweh worshiper in all of Israel. There's a bunch of other people hiding in caves, but he thinks, as he talks about it in various other places, that he is alone, and yet God calls him to stand before Jezebel and Ahab and the idol worshipers of that day and say, we will not, we will not bow down. We must serve the Lord. The book of Acts is a story of God's people, of God's apostles moving and preaching the gospel to all peoples of all socioeconomic levels, but as the Acts moves on, in particular, there is an emphasis on the fact that in particular, Paul is making his way up, up the ranks in the Roman Empire worlds. In fact, Paul so badly wants to get to Rome to speak to power there, and God doesn't seem to let him get there. And so finally, Paul says, you know what? I got a plan. I know I'm going to get arrested in Jerusalem, so I'm going to Jerusalem. And lo and behold, you know what they did? They arrested him in Jerusalem. 
And he, because of that, Paul goes and he does that, and he gets to preach the gospel to Herod and to Felix, and then all the way up to Caesar, preaching the truth to power. The great heroes of the faith have always been willing to speak truth to power instead of acquiescing and selling out to the gospel for the sake of comfort and power in this world. And this is how movements get going. It's when someone, a leader, someone will stand up and say, I will stand on the truth and you will not move me off of it. This is how the Reformation meant something that was just provincial to being something that was a rallying cry. Martin Luther, when he stood before the, his trial at Worms and they put his works before him and they laid it on the table and they said, you must recount, here's what he said. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot... And I will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. And then these words, which are probably spurious. Someone probably added them later on. But sometimes you need good marketing. And someone added these, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. And that became a rallying cry for the Reformation. The call here is for you to continue to proclaim the truth of the gospel to those who hold power in your life. Because it is the people who hold power in your life who can affect your life most significantly and which we have the most difficult time proclaiming truth to. Who, is the, who, are, who are the people or the person who has that power in your life? For you, if you're a young college student, a male, you have a girlfriend, and you, you had a quite a time just to convince her to go out with you in the first place, but now as you've gotten to know her, you're not quite sure she knows Jesus. And what do you got to choose? You gotta go and you gotta say, I'd rather you know Jesus than you, than you know me. I'm willing to give up this relationship so that you can know something better and so that I will not give up on my Savior. It's the mom and dad that have a little tyrant in their house, right? Many of us, we wake up to a little Caesar who demands from the moment they wake up each and every day that we bow to their will. And as parents, what we go is we go, honey, I love you, but you ain't in charge. There's a king and it's not even me. And we in this household, we're going to obey him. And you would be willing to articulate to your son and your daughter the gospel each and every day. And you say, I would rather them be saved than them like me. But that's what it is to speak truth to power. Yes, we often think of it in terms of governmental terms. And there are many Christians throughout the world who have spoken to the authorities in their life, whether spiritual authorities or governmental authorities. But very often for much of us, it may be a boss in your vocation. It may be a spouse. It may be a girlfriend. It may be a teacher or professor at your university. But you speak the truth to power. And the question for us is, are we willing? Are we willing to take up such a task? The advance of the gospel comes as God's men and women stand firm on the truth and focus on the gospel and continue to proclaim that even, even to power. This is hard for us. And so the question is, where do we get the integrity? Where do we get the courage? Where do we get the character and the fortitude to stick to our guns and to stick to the mission that God has given us to proclaim the gospel? Well, listen, if the rulers of this world and the rulers in our lives are telling us to do one thing, the only thing that would be is more that you have to go to, you have to find a better ruler. You have to find a better leader, a better king, and that is exactly what we're going to turn to. 
Because that is exactly what Peter and the apostles do. When the world's rulers say to us, you must follow our way, listen, for the most part, the Bible says you've got to follow them unless, unless there is a greater king who says otherwise. And that's what Peter and the apostles point to. Look at verse 29. Peter and the apostles answered. The Senate tells them, no, do not teach or preach about this man and his name, this Jesus. And Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. What do they say? How do they speak truth to power? Is they say that we have a better power. We have a better leader who rules over us. And there's an interesting word here, a word that, we, that we're not used to seeing in the scriptures. We're quite used to Jesus being called savior, But there is another terminology that they use there. It's the word leader is the way it's translated here. Now, this is a word that is used only four different times in the New Testament. And in most of your Bibles, what you'll find is every time this word is used, the Greek word that undergirds it, which is the Greek word archegos, every time it is translated, it is given a different translation because its range of what it could mean is so wide. In Acts 3, it is translated as author. In Acts 5 here, it's translated as leader in the ESV, but in the NAS, it is translated as Jesus as being our prince. In Hebrews, it is used twice there, and there it's used as uh, our leader or our champion or our hero. This word archegos has the root word archeg, which means ruler. In other words, what they're saying is that Jesus is the king. He is the hero, he is the leader, and he is the champion. And because we are functioning out of the ESV this morning, we will use the terminology of leader. And what we are seeing here is when the powers that be say bow, we say no. You all may be great leaders, but we have a better leader. We have a greater leader, and we must serve him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember them? King of Babylon says bow, and they say we will not bow. And they spoke truth to power. And they bowed, why? Because they say we have a greater king, a better leader, and a better champion to follow. So, that's the point this morning. If you're going to see the advancement of the gospel, then you must be willing to speak truth, to continue to speak the gospel to power, even if it might cost you something. And the means of doing that is you must look to a, a better leader, a higher ruler, a champion and a hero. Well, we can be done there. But I don't think that does a whole lot to change us. That's nice. That's the principle, and that's what we're shooting for. You know, in the Greco-Roman world, they had great stories. You have all these mythological stories in, in the Greek world in particular. You're probably forced to read that in some sort of literature class in junior high and high school, and you were utterly bored by it. But the reason why they used to tell stories is back then, when they wanted to teach their children and develop in their children character and integrity and courage, they didn't do so by simply giving principles. They didn't, go, they didn't go, you know what, you should be courageous. You know what they did? They told stories of people who were courageous. And that's what God does. He tells stories of our ruler and our king who is courageous and who spoke truth to power. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. The story of our great leader, we're going to look at three aspects that I think Luke is drawing out in this text in chapter 5 that I think encourage us, that form in us the character and the courage that it takes to speak truth to power. The three aspects of the story of our leader, and the first is this. 
And I want you to see first is the victory of our leader. The victory of our leader. What do Peter and the apostles point to when they say, we must obey God? What do they point to then? They point to the victory of God through Jesus Christ. They say, our leader, our ruler, our prince, our hero shows us the way to ultimate victory. And the way to ultimate victory is not to give up, give up the gospel in order to make you approve of us. We often, the way we often think of the way of ultimate victory is defined by achieving power or finding comfort and safety. And that's how we'll get, we'll make it to heaven if we can just extricate ourselves from culture and extricate ourselves from the authorities of this world. That is not a faithful way in which the Bible calls us to live. How does the victory of our leader come about? How does it say? What do the apostles say? Right there, they say, don't teach about Jesus. And they say, yeah, we're going to teach about Jesus and we're going to do it right to your face. And how do they say, here's how he won the victory. Peter says this. They says that you hung him on a tree. You hung him on a tree. People who were hung on trees were cursed in the Jewish understanding. People who were crucified on trees. That was the most terrible of all deaths. It was to be the lowest of the low if you got hung on a tree. You see what's going on here. They point to their hero and they say, look at the victory of our leader. The victory of our leader did not come by giving up the truth. And by taking up power for himself, but by laying it down and becoming weak, becoming broken by being crushed on a cross. You see, this is different than the way we develop our heroes. How do our our superheroes get developed? Think about about, uh, Spider-Man, Peter Parker. He's a hero, right? How does Peter Parker become a great superhero? Is it by laying down power? No. He gets bit by a spider. And he gets superpowers. He takes up power. And by taking up power, he begins to do great and wonderful things, but that is so different with Jesus. My goodness, it is different. Jesus had all power, right? He was in heaven, reigning with the Father. He had cosmic power. He is the one who brought all things into existence. And yet, what does he do? He takes on human flesh, and he lays down all power. He become weak to save us. His heroism, his leadership lay in the fact that he was willing to lay his glory to the side, to lay his power to the side, to become vulnerable in this world, to become mortal so that he might be killed on a cross. And that's the means by which his victory came. And yet the victory comes through the cross and through the grave. That's what they point to. You crucified him, and yet what happens? It is through the cross that God brings about his great victory in this world. It is the one who makes himself low. It is the one who is hated by this world. It is he who gets exalted. It is he who the Father lifts up to reign with him for all of eternity. It is he who is ascended, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 1 in Acts. See, if you seek victory through the path of worldly power and comfort and safety, you will actually lose power, comfort, and safety in the end. Because in God's economy, the means by which we are victorious is by laying our lives down not by taking them up. Robert Weber, he's a scholar of worship, has, has written some significantly academic books, but had a, um, a great academy of worship. And he wrote a book called Ancient and Future Faith. And much of what he was studying there was the ancient forms of faith and worship in the early church. And what he found was in the first, first two centuries, as he evaluated our culture today and how we could apply old practices of faith and worship to the way the church functions today, is he said, as we seek to communicate in a culture that is rejecting God, that is postmodern and moved away from him and is post-Christian, is it says it looks eerily like what the first two centuries of the church endeavored to, to address. That what they were faced with 
was a world that hated them, a world that didn't want to hear their truth. And so he asked the question, how do you speak truth when no one wants to hear it? How do you speak truth to power when you don't have any? How do you speak truth when the people who hear it get, well, very, very, very angry at you for speaking that truth? Weber said we are not moving into something new, but we are reverting back to the early days of the church. And we must look and see how the early church did it and where they looked. And what they did is they looked to Jesus and how he proclaimed the truth. Jesus had no power, no prestige, and no money, and yet he was victorious. God loves us. And this is the truth. And we are, we are struggling and we are stressed by the fact that we are losing power. And perhaps we will lose liberties. But God loves us so much, he won't let his church go down the road of power and money to win the victory. Because that's never how it's been done. His power is made perfect in what? Weakness. And it is in the loss of power and it is in the loss of leverage that we can see God do something powerful and wonderful in this world. That's how the gospel advances. This is how it's advanced in much of the third world and the places where Christians are persecuted. You know, my, my parents are here. And one of the earliest memories of my life was being at, I don't know if it was a pregnancy resources event as a child. And they had a book table where you could go and you could pick out any book. And this is one of the earliest memories of my life, maybe just after I learned how to read. And I went and picked out a book called Brother Andrew. God's smuggler. Some of you may be familiar, especially if you're a little bit older, you may remember Brother Andrew. He would smuggle Bibles into communist countries, both in China and in Eastern Europe. And he was teaching at a Bible conference in Hungary when in walked a Romanian pastor who had been in prison because of his faith for a very long time. This Romanian pastor asked Brother Andrew, how many Dutch pastors are in prison for their faith? Brother Andrew at this time had resided in Holland. And Brother Andrew responded this way, simply one word, None. You could see that this stunned the Romanian pastor. It didn't register in his brain. He began to process this information. And he said then in Holland, what do you all do with 2 Timothy 3.18 that says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. What do you do with that verse? And Brother Andrew said, he said this, forgive us, brother. We We don't know anything about that verse. We don't know what to do with it. And the truth is, the American and Western church still doesn't know what to do with that verse. Leonard Ravenhill said this, the early church, Leonard Ravenhill was a great revivalistic preacher in the middle part of the 20th century, and he said this, the early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecution. Today, the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. Andy Crouch, who's become become one of the greatest voices on cultural, on understanding the culture and how to engage it as Christians. He recently wrote a book called Playing God in which he was looking at what it looks like for Christians to redeem power in this world. He said this, amid safety the world has never known before, the greatest spiritual struggle many of us face is to be willing to take off our bubble wrap. To be willing to be, to be so weak, to be put in a place of danger, For the sake of the gospel, the North American church is self-absorbed, it is materialistic, it is fat and flabby, and we wonder why the gospel is advancing, isn't advancing, we're blaming the world out there, but in reality, it's our big bloated guts that are so happy with our comforts and with our power. We say to Jesus, get us in the game, and he says, I don't think you're ready yet. I don't think you're ready yet. But here's the thing, the same thing could have been said a few weeks earlier about the disciples, couldn't it? 
When persecution first started to come, a little servant girl comes to Peter and goes, I know who you are. Here she is. She has no power. She has the power of a mouse. And he runs for the hills. And here he is standing up with courage. What happened between those two events? The cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. That God went down into death, and he won the victory. The story of our leader, of our prince, of our hero, first thing we got to see, if you're going to grow in the integrity and in your character to be courageous to speak truth to power, is you got to see his victory. The second thing, though, you got to see his vindication as well. you got to see his vindication, his ultimate vindication, and I may also say this, his historical vindication. We'll pick up in verse 33. There's this interesting account where this man... Gamaliel, here it is, the people, uh, people of the synod are very angry. They're, they're wanting, what is the response? They want to kill Peter and the apostles, and then suddenly an older, wiser man, an elder amongst them, stands up and says, let's cool our jets a little bit, guys. And here's what he says. Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, he said to the men of Israel, take care about what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, he gives two examples about Thetis and Judas. And he says, there, there have been uprisings before. And they both just go away. And he says, what he goes on to say is, what we have to do is, let's just, let's lay back and let's see what's ha- what happens here. If this is true, then there will be nothing that will stop it. It will grow and take over. But if it's not true, then it'll die out. What did, what did Gamaliel do? He laid the gauntlet down before God himself. What I want you to see here is in our day, we have a very haughty sense that we are above history. That from our momentary historical vantage point, we, are able, we think we are able to determine the true winners and losers of history. What Gamaliel is saying is, let's let history decide. But the problem in that, as we evaluate that, is your place in history. The term is thrown around a lot today in the midst of the culture wars, right? They say this, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. But these are inherently, frankly, they're, they're rather arrogant statements, um, my parents are here, and I've mentioned that a number of times. And so I'm, since my parents are here, I figured this is a good time to make a confession to them. I wasn't allowed to listen to secular music as a kid, but mom and dad, at 16, I listened to secular music uh, because a friend of mine, um, they remember Jason Monin, and this is going to be shocking. Uh, a friend of mine named Jason Monin, who um, was allowed to listen to secular music, would take for me the Hot 9 at 9 on 107.1 WA1A. The Hot 9 at 9, where it was at, man. And it was cassette tape. Can you believe I'm that old? Cassette tapes. But one of the songs, the first tape he ever made for me, there was a song that was very popular in the mid-90s by a guy named Jesus Jones. Do you remember Jesus Jones? His most famous song was Right Here, Right Now, and the chorus went this way. Right here, right now, there is no other place I want to be. Right here, right now, we are watching the world wake up from history. What he was communicating, one, he was communicating at the end of the Cold War, but second, he was communicating is all the rest of history, we have the right vantage point. Everybody else has been caught up in the religion and all this other stuff, and we are now beyond all that, and we can rightly evaluate all of history. That reveals the arrogance of our time. Every culture has their perspectives and their views. And the problem is our view of history is about this big. Our little breath while we are here on earth. But here's the thing. The world tells us right now, in particular in the Western world, they're saying, church, you lost. You lost the culture wars. 
Church, you lost. Church, you're going to die. Church, frankly, why don't you just go away? And in fact, many people in the church are saying, that's fine, we'll just go away. We'll hold ourselves up and we'll take ourselves away because we lost. But you know what? History vindicates us. And the promise is that history will vindicate us. So I'm going to give you three answers about how history vindicates us here both in our time and answers Gamaliel's charge. First is this. In our time, some people in, our, in the Western culture are saying that we have lost. And here's the truth. We might have lost. And the church may continue to descend in its power and its prestige and its purpose here. And maybe the church will shrivel up and die. But the truth is this, is that Christianity is not dying around most of the world. It is growing in rapid pace in the third world. It is going nowhere. And actually, I think the stats all show that Christianity is going nowhere in the United States of America as well. But that's this, for this historical moment. But second, the 2,000-year scope of history also shows us that Gamaliel's challenge has been answered. What does Gamaliel say? If it's of God, nothing can stop it. And that has been the truth of the church's history for the last 2,000 years. The church spent its first 300 years running from having its heads cut off and being eaten by lions. And yet what happens? The church grows, and it grows, and it grows. Why? Because nothing can stop it if it's of God. 2,000 years has vindicated the challenge of Gamaliel, but even more than that, we as Christians who go to the Word, you see, we can go into a, into a historical tit-for-tat. You hear this a lot between Christians and Muslims. We, like, point and go, yeah, you really, I mean, look what you guys are doing. And they go, look at the Crusades, and look what you guys do. This is never a very helpful argument for us to look at too much history. But ultimately, we have to go to God's Word, and what does God's Word say about history? Ultimately, God's Word says this, that the promise is this, is there is a king who is coming back and he is going to make all things new, and he will rule and reign forever, and all who follow him will be vindicated ultimately. That is the truth of Scripture. And that is the correct view from all of history. At the end of all things, not smack dab in the middle of it or wherever in the world we are. Andy Crouch says this, that what we've often done is, is we have sought to have power here in this, in this moment. And because we think that it's all about us, us achieving something, right, success right now, that we have, we have strapped ourselves to things that we ought not to. And he actually uses the example of the prosperity gospel, and he says this. In our time, we have seen the rise of the prosperity gospel, which in its crassest form promises quick wealth and mechanical proportion to faith. But the prosperity gospel has not only a thin and unbiblical understanding of wealth, it has a thin and unbiblical understanding of time. In the biblical mindset, prosperity that does not last is not true prosperity at all. And let me say this, a power that does not last is not true power at all. In other words, what I'm saying is we might think the cause to lay down our power and to speak truth to power, we might think, oh my goodness, we're being made weak. But we have to, we have to see our power in light of all of history. The history that God promises will be, will be there at the very end. Surely goodness and mercy, God says, shall follow me all the days of my life. And what's going to happen at the end? And I should dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Gamaliel says, if this undertaking is the plan of man, it'll fail, but it's of God. You won't be able to stop him. Listen, brothers and sisters, if the success of gospel advancement rests on our cunning, on our power, on our political formats, on our wonderful TV, Christian TV shows or movies, or our abilities to make great plans, guess what? We will fail. But if our, if our success rests on the power of God, nothing will stop it. So, 
Look to the story of God, the story of your hero and your champion and your leader, your ruler. He's won the victory. History has and will vindicate him. And the last thing I want you to see, to encourage you and call you to obey this ruler and this prince and follow him instead of all the rulers of this world, is I want you to see the vision of this leader. The vision of this leader. What happens if you speak truth to power? What's a likely thing they're going to do? Well, they might just beat the pulp out of you. That's what happened to Peter and the apostles, right? The, the Senate goes, all right, you guys can go. But before we do that, we're going to put, remind you of something. We're going to remind you of our power. And so why don't you guys go over there, and we got these nice whips, and we're going to beat you about 39 times. 39 times, that was the most they were able to beat them because it was thought that 40 would bring on imminent death. 39 times. And yet, what's, how do the disciples or the apostles respond? What do we see in verse 41? How do they respond? They left the presence of the council doing what? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoice in suffering. The means by which you're going to be able to stand up and speak truth to power and, 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 and risk suffering and risk persecution and risk loss and risk weakness is you have to have a greater joy. Something that transcends this world and this life. You know, this has been the case of those who have gone forth and proclaimed the gospel around the world. You know, in much of the missionary endeavors of the, of, the, of the 17th, 18th, and 19th century in which health was not very great, particularly in places like Africa, there's a church in Nigeria behind which there are 58 graves. 38 of those graves are the children of missionaries. One, two, and three-year-olds whose parents knew that when they got on that ship and they went to a malaria-riddled country, what would happen? Most likely, they would never bring all their children back. And yet, they went anyway. Why? Because there was a joy. There was a joy that they looked to. John and Mary Ann Patton, who were famous missionaries who went to the New Hebrides, and they endured incredible suffering in their first time there in that country. Within the first six months, their newborn child died. And after one year, John Patton's wife died as well. And he said this in his memoirs. He said, I would have gone insane next to her lonely grave had it not been for Jesus and the words of my wife on her deathbed. He said to her, while he was sitting there kneeling and weeping next to her, said, I am so sorry I have brought you to this place. And she looked up at him and said, I don't regret leaving family. I don't regret leaving country. I don't regret leaving security or safety. I have but one regret, regret that I did not do it with more joy. The gospel calls us forward by joy. That in the midst of suffering and the means by which you're to get the courage to proclaim truth to power is through joy. It propels us forward in the face of difficulty and challenge. Joy fixes us on fixes our eyes on something. It gives us a vision that is outside of the momentary historical circumstances in which we are living. What vision do you fixate on? What thing, what, are you, what, are you, what has captured your imagination? And, and as a Christian, what I want to instill in you is the courage in order to speak truth to power, to, to speak the truth of the people in this way, the people who have power and significance in your life and continue to proclaim the gospel to them, even if it's hard. Now, the difficulty for us is here's how we, we take on the world's mindset and the way we try to get up with this kind of courage. No, we, kind of, we, have, we have a self-sufficient courage. I'll describe it this way. We have water boy courage. 
You remember Waterboy? It's a, one of those ridiculous, dumb Adam Sandler movies from the 90s and early 2000s. And there's this, but there's this character in the, in the movie Waterboy. I don't recommend seeing the movie at all. You'll be dumber at the end of it than when you started. But there's this character who's from the backwoods. He's a, a you know, crazy Cajun. And randomly throughout the movie, he shows up. And to Adam Sandler, what does he say? You can do it. You can do it. And that is the way in which we have courage today. In fact, you actually see it. it used to be an athlete, and the way in which people talk about psychologically, psychological treatment for athletes as they're, as they're thinking about the next game is they think about what they got to do, and they tell themselves over and over and over again, you can do it. You can do it. What do we become? We've simply become dis- delusional. In other words, we, in our, our ways of being courageous is not, to say, is not to look at the challenges in front of us, but is to look at ourselves and just say over and over and over again and just, just ignore the realities and the circumstances we live in and just say, you can do it. It's within you. You've got the power to do this. One of my, my favorite movies growing up was the movie What's Up, Doc? And um, this is the, the same delusion was seen in that movie. Some of you have seen this movie. It's by Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. To me, it's one of the top five, my top five favorite movies. and has the greatest chase scene in all of movie history. And right near the end of the movie, they are being chased, and they're, Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill are in this little Volkswagen Beetle, and they're driving, and they've got about eight cars chasing them, and they're trying to get away from these people, and they're driving onto the San Francisco Pier, and she sees a boat, and she's thinking, we can land the car on this boat. And they're driving down the pier, and it's, it's obvious as you're watching the movie, there's no way they're going to come close to landing the boat or the car on this boat. And all the way down the pier, she's saying, we can do it. And he's saying, no, we can't do it. And she's saying, we can do it. And he's saying, no, we can't do it. And they go off the pier, and they go into the water, and you hear Barbara Streisand as they're flying in the water saying, I don't think we can do it. <laughs> this is the reality for many of us as Christians. If we take up the world's means of courage, to just look at ourselves in the mirror and just go, you can do it. You don't got it. You got to look to a better vision. Not to your own self-sufficiency, but you got to look to the vision of the name. The name, what do they look to? They say they rejoice, why? Because they were suffered for the sake of the name. What are they looking at? Are they saying, oh, is this some, some masochistic love of, of, of pain? Look at us, we got beaten. No, they're not rejoicing about the fact that they are beaten. They're rejoicing in the fact that they can give glory and honor to the name. What have they set before them? And what is the call for us? To look to the name. To look to the glory of the name. You know, we started with this word archegos, leader and ruler. And one of the places in which that word is used is in Hebrews 12. And it says this in Hebrews 12. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the archegos the author or the ruler and finisher of your faith, who for the joy set before him ran the race, endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Listen, do you see? You got to get a vision of your leader, but do you also see this, that your leader, the way in which he was courageous, he had a vision as well, a joyous vision that set before him. Think about Jesus. How did he do it? How did he face the cross? How did he speak truth to power? How was he willing to be crushed? In the garden, he says, God, Father, take this cup from, from me. Because he's looked at himself and said, I can do this. I got this. No. What does it say? Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him. What does he do? He looks to the vision 
and the vision is us. You see, he's got glory. He's got the Father. What did he come to get? This is the bizarrest thing. He came to win you. The vision of our leader, the joy that he looked to, to help him endure the suffering that he must endure, was he looked to the joy of getting us. So how are you supposed to get courageous? You look at yourself? No. You look to the one who's been courageous on your behalf. It's been a while since we got a Lord of the Rings reference, so here we go. We'll finish with this one. There's the great battle in which there's Eowyn who rides down. She's a great, mighty princess warrior. And she is fighting a great battle, and she is fighting this evil king in one of the, one of the wonderful battles of Lord of the Rings. And there with her is one of the little hobbits. And he is frightened, and he is terrified, and he's hiding at, around anything he possibly can. He has no courage. But it says this, that his courage came this way, not by just going and saying, I've got it. Look how big and strong I am. Look at me, I'm a hobbit. Right? That's the world's way of getting courage. What does he do? It says, no, he saw Eowyn as she fought the mighty king. And it says, as he saw her fight on his behalf, it said something happened. It goes on, and Tolkien says this, pity filled his heart and great wonder. And suddenly the slow kindled courage of his race, race awoke and he clenched his hand and took up his sword. What did he see? He saw a leader, a princess in this case, fighting on his behalf. And there it is. You see, our approach, the biblical approach for courage and speaking truth of power is not to say, I can do it, but it's to look to the one who has done it for you. And when you do that, he provides the power necessary to take up the call to proclaim the gospel, even in the highest courts. Let's pray and we'll go to the table. Those who are serving will come forward as I pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that while you give us a very difficult call, you give us a call that is antithetical to the way we naturally think. You call us to lay down power. Or if we have it, to use it all for the sake of others. Lord, you call us to go and stand up in front of the powerful in our lives and speak the truth, even if it means loss and pain. Gracious God, this is a difficult task. And so, God, we need courage. And, God, we need a vision of something joyous. And so, Lord, we, for that vision, we come to your table. We come to, to, to think and remember upon the one who laid down his life for us, who faced hell, who faced the rejection of the Father, who faced the wrath that we all deserve in order to win us. And so, gracious Heavenly Father, because he is one, we also have the victory and we have the joy of looking forward to the day in which we will eat another meal with you, a meal at the end of all time, and we will look back at history and we will see how it has validated your victory. And we will say, you are king and you reign over all things. You are the greatest ruler over all kings, the king of kings and lord of lords, and we praise you and we'll raise our glass and we'll raise our food, and we'll rejoice for the king. So God, we set aside this bread and this juice. 
These things that represent your body and your blood shed for us. And we, lay, we set them aside and we ask that you would do your, your means of grace through them. May your spirit work in us to give us courage, to give us strength, to fulfill the mission, to advance the gospel, the call that you have put before us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.